Hey, this is Jeb Gerald with Two Glasses of Bourbon. I'm joined here with Coleman Calloway, Coley, and my co-host Bill Evans-Ming. And today we're going to have a conversation on art and sporting art in particular, and uh, log cabins, old houses. We're covering a lot of things today. Uh, Coleman's had a really, Coley's had a really interesting life, and we're, I'm excited to talk about it. So it's just going to be a really casual conversation like usual, and uh, I'm excited to get started. So, Coley, I know we kind of talked beforehand about how you got into uh, collecting stoles and really art in general. Can you kind of tell us about that? Well, I've always been interested in art, and uh, mainly uh, my, my I went to, to a semi-private school that was part of the University of Kentucky, and uh, was, was offered a wonderful education, but I was not a very good student, and so some of my teachers would send me to either the art room or the gym when I was uh, disruptive in class. Well, I spent a lot of time in the art room and the gym, and my my art teacher was Mrs. Ruth Haynes, who has passed a long time ago, but she kept me interested in every single medium that you can imagine in artwork, from paper mache to sculpting to painting to oils, uh, finger paints, uh, watercolors, uh, metal work, uh, every, just everything. Her, her art room was just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful place. And then, uh, then my mother was somewhat of an undiscovered artist. But she did all of the uh, sets and, and uh, costume design and everything for the little for the children's theater in Lexington for years. And she did uh, designed and did needlework, and uh, she was a a big uh, uh, junk store uh, addict. And she would buy junk, and she and I would we had a really great basement in our house, and we we had our place down there where we called what we call refinishing furniture, which was basically stripping the paint off of nasty old pieces of furniture and refinishing them. And then she, she would use them in our house. But uh, so all of those things kind of came together. And uh, my, my great grandfather who had passed away had commissioned Henry Stull to paint three of his horses. And they were Hernando, Elizabeth L and Kurt Gunn. When I was about, 13 or 14 years old, I found those paintings in a storage uh, area in the basement of my grandmother's residence. And Hernando was on the bottom. They were stacked. And Hernando was on the bottom. And at that time, we pretty well considered him to be ruined. Now I might have tried to restore the, that painting, but mm -hmm. nevertheless, that was thrown out. My aunt, my Aunt Betty, uh, Elizabeth, uh, she got, that's my father's sister, she got the uh, Elizabeth L, and my grandmother gave me Kurt Gunn. And Kurt Gunn uh, won the Bluegrass Stakes and a whole bunch of other stakes and was a fairly good racehorse, but he was a gelding. He didn't have any no know, progeny. No progeny, so that was the kind of the end of that story, but uh, that created my interest in Henry Stull to start off with and, and having that wonderful painting. Uh, so I, I started collecting Henry Stull's, but at the same time, I was very interested in printmaking and lithography and uh, uh Woodcuts and lino cut, all all types of printmaking. I did a lot of reading on it. I've done a lot of that kind of stuff in Mrs. Haynes's art room, and uh, so I was also at the same time I was collecting contemporary, uh, mostly not not no, abstract and other contemporary uh, print. 
and I got really interested in, in that, and I probably, over time, I probably bought, I don't know, two or three hundred of them. And uh, I've given a lot of, I've given several of them away, and I, but I still have a lot of them. And then, as I became, you know, as I was making more money, and I think I was a able to buy more uh, of the older equine work by Henry Stull, and then my interest expanded to other uh, equine artists, and that's how I ended up with five or six hundred paintings that uh, mostly are uh, over a hundred years old. And that's amazing. That's something I should have mentioned early on in the conversations that you know, Coley is one of the preeminent, I would say the preeminent collector of Henry Stoll. Uh, Private, right, yes. It's, you know, his work, his collections have been exhibited at the uh, Governor's Mansion in, in Frankfurt and probably several other places. Speedy Whitney Museum. Speed Museum. Speed Museum. And now I've got pieces going to the National Sporting Library Museum in Middleburg, Virginia. Middleburg, Virginia. Yeah, they'll, they'll be leaving here on Monday. Three very important pieces. And it's kind of amazing. You know, we're sitting here in Coley's living room. And when you look at the walls, it's really just breathtaking. You know, I'm looking around, I'm seeing Allard's and Stalls and Troy's, and it's such a cool thing. And I really appreciate that you're, you know, having us here, letting us have the opportunity to have this conversation. Um, so when you're looking at Stalls, like, or just sporting art in general, like, what jumps out at you? Is it that you, you appreciate the horses? Is it the connection to your family history? Is it just you appreciate the artistry there? What's What are your thoughts? Well, I have been associated with horses one way or another since I was eight or nine years old. Riding, showing, jumping, uh, dressage, uh, galloping race horses, owning race horses, owning broodmares, uh, you know, pretty much all the way through. And uh, so the equine part of, I mean, sporting art's a big, a big genre. But uh, I, I'm more interested in uh, almost all my collection is dedicated to the equine part. So, uh, and, and then, I mean, once, once you, you know, it's, it's almost like a sickness. Any collector has got a real problem. They need to probably see a psychiatrist or something. But uh, yep. when you get to collecting, you just you can't quit, basically. I have been able to fairly well channel my collection into equine, American equine between early 1800s and 1915. Okay. Uh, in America. Now, I have a few things that are outside of that, but they were things that I got really, really inexpensively and things that I really liked a lot. I have most of them okay. outside the definition. But the definition of my of that part of my collection, equine, early 1800s to 19, nothing past 1915. Okay, that sounds good. And 1915 was kind of established by Henry Stell died. Nineteen thirteen. Okay. So that was kind of the that helped me with the definition of that. That makes sense. I was going to ask about that. So when you say early eighteen hundreds, well, actually, could you just kind of walk us through who are some of the major artists during that time frame? We talked about Stoll, you know, maybe Troy and some of the others that, that to be looking well, out for. The early guy, the really early guys, uh, Bill can probably uh, talk about those people, but. Uh, the, the earliest ones that I have are, are Allers, Troy, and uh, uh, Clifton, maybe. Yeah, I think Clifton's actually just a hair later. Later? More along the lines of Stull. Yeah, okay. Um, who am I thinking of? Yeah, you know, Troy's going to be as early as you, you can go. Um, because Alvin Fisher really was the first sporting painter in America. And he, when did he do Eclipse? 1828? Eclipse? American Eclipse. American Eclipse. Uh, he may have done it earlier, but yeah. Um, yeah, that's really where you started in America. Right. Um, so 
probably the most of my earliest paintings are the 1850s, 60s. Yeah. I will have some that'll be earlier than that, but most, almost all of them be from that time on forward. Okay. Which, yeah, that's why Troy came here was because he had the market, or there was a market because no one else was doing it. You want to kind of give us a background, uh, Bill, of who Troy was, how he ended up here. Just give us a 30-second overview, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with Troy. Maybe they've heard the name, they've seen a painting or two of his, but you know they, they don't really know about Troy, the immigrant who uh, got to the highest levels of, of sporting art here in America. Yeah, so he was born in Switzerland, um, 1807. Gosh, I can't remember dates exactly. And then he grew up there in London, but he first arrived in Philadelphia maybe in 1832 and started doing painting, sporting paintings around Philadelphia and Virginia before he made his way to the Western country. And Lexington was advertising there at the Phoenix Hotel, which then becomes pretty amazing that he becomes the best confirmation painter there in the world of the mid 19th century. And the guys living in the back country of Midway, Kentucky and Georgetown. Um, but that is one thing about him is he was really judging horse flesh too. And at that time they were, he was, his works were reprinted in works like the spirit of the times and things for searching for good bloodstock and that sort of thing. So that's a quick one. Okay. Well, also it was a, um, uh, passion yep. of the farm owners mm -hmm. to have a horse that they felt like was worthy of a, of a painting, of a reproduction. There was no photography. Mm -hmm. So Troy presented himself and suddenly he, I mean, he came, became like best friends with these very wealthy farm owners, stayed at their farm, uh, painted at their farm, and then went from place to place as, as, as opportunities presented themselves. But it was a it was it was a big deal for those uh, farm owners to have Troy on their farm sketching, painting, and, and painting their famous or their favorite horses. I'm sure it was fairly expensive um, when you start thinking about his time to sit there and take the paintings, and well, it, it would have been an investment on their part. Is that fair to say? I don't know. I don't think so. Really? I, okay. I think it was uh, cigarette change to them. You know, I mean, okay. it was really. I mean, they fed him and they gave him a place to stay. And I'm sure that it wasn't palatial, although he probably ate at their table and, you know, all those kind of things. And then he worked and turned these works out. And, and I'd say that it was not, they didn't consider it very expensive at all. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm thinking maybe the 10 by 12s or 12 by 14s were $10. And then maybe the 20 by 24s or 25 by 30s were $25. And he may have later bumped those up to $50. So. And I, I, don't, and I don't know what the, what the multiple is about what that $10 was worth back then in today's, today's time. But I right. still think it was not what those people would consider expensive. Yep. That's really interesting. I, I guess I, that's why I enjoy these conversations. And because I'm I don't think learning. Troy was looking at it to create a fortune either. I think he was looking at it because that was his passion. That's what he loved to do. He was damn good at it. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, but, but he was basically an itinerant mm -hmm. for a long time. Yeah, and that's why he was considered such a good judge of horse flesh that, um, was it Richards or Alexander? Took him to the Middle East. Alexander. Alexander took him to the Middle East. Uh, uh, Mr. Alexander, who owned Woodburn. Over off for Sales Row? Uh, no, it's or, over off of... Oh, uh, off Frankfurt Pike, right? Frankfurt yeah. Pike, yeah. Sorry. It's in Woodburn County. And uh, he decided that he was going to go to Europe and to the Middle East to study horse flesh and to bring the horses that he became enamored with back to Kentucky and introduce them into his breeding stock and thereby 
influence the thoroughbred breed and enhance his his uh, his stock. And that makes sense. And so he invited Troy to go with him for two reasons. One, because he was such an observer and, and such a a good judge of horsemanship. And the other is that he wanted him to paint to get an image that he could bring back with him of some of these animals that he observed and uh, actually have what we would do with photography today that they were doing with painting back then. They planned to go to Europe, I think, and they stayed in Europe for maybe a year. They planned to go to Europe for a year, I believe. And then they got this idea about going and looking at the uh, Arabian horses that basically the Bedouin tribesmen had. And they went over there, and they, I think they stayed over there for like four years. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, it was, well, just getting across the water was a big deal, but you didn't go over there for a weekend. You know, <laughs> but going for four, they, I think they were away for five years. That makes sense. It's not a it's not a quick and easy undertaking. No. And it was a real dedication and something that you had to have a real passion for. And it wasn't easy either. I mean, they, they camped out a lot. So, uh, but what they brought back was some of uh, Troy's absolutely most fantastic work of, of the Bedouin tribesmen and their horses and things like that. It was just absolutely just, I guess, all of those things that have been, that have made it this far, Bill, are in, pri are in museums, aren't they? Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say very few private collections have any of those paintings. I think some of the family still does. Some of the family. So when we're talking about, you know, you mentioned there are <laughs> stalls out there. And uh, we you also have 11 dogs with us today. <laughs> they're they're guests, uh, also guests <laughs> on the podcast. So how prolific was Troy? So it sounds like, you know, it was relatively inexpensive to have a painting. So are there hundreds of toys out there? Are we talking thousands? You know, what, how often do these come up? Um, I think the estimate's kind of about 350 right now, but there's got to be some more out there. Um, I was trying to think of the ones that are unsigned. You know, we just don't know. A lot of these, though, eventually ended up, the guys would just put them in the barns. And so some got ruined, and you don't know where they are. I actually just got one in that ended up in a thrift store in Arkansas. Um so he just purchased one on a little antique store down at the corner of uh, Short and right across from the, the church, right across from St. Peter's Church there. Yeah. I, I, I bought one there, unsigned. But one uh, one of the largest Troy collectors, private Troy collectors in the, in the United States bought it from me for uh, a, a big price. So <laughs> it, it's pretty much pretty sure it was a Troy. And five or six people had actually looked at it and had gone, mm, nah, mm, nah, and they weren't they weren't going to buy it, so they really didn't, uh, you know, give it their thumbs up. But the second I saw it, I started negotiating on buying it, <laughs> and uh, I didn't buy it, and then sold it pretty pretty quickly. That's pretty cool. So, do you do a lot of trading when you when it comes to paintings? I don't do or? a lot of trading, but I do some. Okay. What's what would lead you to what help makes you uh, decide to keep a painting versus trade it? Is it come down to value? Is it come down to you? Well, how much? What do you feel about the painting? Right now, it's it's volume. <laughs> you know, where am I going to stack the next one against the wall? Because my walls are covered. Uh, That's a good problem to have. And then I have another, I have another I have a, a Kentucky uh, collection too. Uh, that that not contemporary things, but older things like uh, uh, well, Robert Burns Wilson, Joyner, Hunley, Hunley Harvey Joyner, Sawyer, Hunley, Sawyer, uh, and and then some more folky kind of stuff from Eastern Kentucky and. Uh, not, not you wouldn't really call them folk paintings, but they are landscapes and things like that uh, from from Eastern Kentucky people that uh, 
are really <laughs> they're really good painters, but they you know they have no exposure. Because mm. when I find one something like that, I it usually ends up my <laughs> ownership. I haven't been out and about as much for the last couple of years looking for stuff like I did before, but uh, now I'm learned to use the basic uh, qualities and of the internet, mm -hmm. which is another curse, but uh, you can look at so much stuff and that uh, I'm using that more than being out and about. That was actually going to be my next question, so that's a great segue. So when you're looking for a painting, so I mean, you mentioned the internet. I know live auctioneers, you can look at a lot of things on there. Um, you can always call Bill at the Crossgate Gallery because I know he's uh, one of the go-to guys when it comes to supporting art, but you know, if, for, if someone was looking to get into this and particularly if they wanted to look and say, you know what, maybe I don't have 10000 to spend on a painting. Maybe I have whatever that number is. Where would you start looking? Is it eBay? Well, is it auctions? One of the things that I like to tell. Crossgate. Crossgate. <laughs> one of the things that I like to tell younger people who might be thinking about buying artwork mm -hmm. is that to only buy what you like. I mean, and that you really look at it and you say, man, I would love to look at that every day. I'm not going to get tired of looking. I'm going to look at that every day. It's going to be on my wall, and I'm going to look at it every day. I, like I want that. it to be part of my life for, for a long time. And then also, that that don't, don't think that something is of value, particularly to you, just because just because of the price. I mean, I have bought things for $15 that I absolutely cherish and 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 still do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I did a, the Lexington Art League used to have a program that they put on every year. It's called Seven by Seven. They still have that. Do they still have oh, that? Oh, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful program. Well, they, they invited me to share my collection with the Art League, mm -hmm. and I was one of the people. And so I aimed my seven, I, you curate your own collection, basically, and take the seven pieces and, and present them. And uh, I, I thought, you know, they, there's a bunch of young people in the Art League, and there's a bunch of young people that are going to see this. I'm going to show them seven pieces that I have spent very little bit of money on or maybe might have even been gifts that I really cherish. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what I did. And I, there were some other people that brought some, I mean, original Picassos and things like that in there. And I really think that my presentation got more looks and more consideration than those other ones did. I can see that. And uh, I was I was really, really tickled with with how that all came out. So so hmm. the, but the point is and if, if you have a passion for art, start off with something that you want to put on your wall and you want to live with for a long time. And it the, the cost is just totally insignificant. I like that. So it almost sounds like you can go out, find local artists, especially young artists that the cost isn't big. You can go ahead and be supporting someone who's local, who's getting into this or who's All feeding their so family. so important. And, and, and that's that your, your, your feeding of the art community is part of the passion of doing it too. I mean, that's yep. all wound up together and uh, you can start anywhere with it. You can just, just it's kind of cool to think that you know if I go to the Lexington Art League and I know they do uh, some really great sales. They've got the place there, the Loudon House, the uh, McMurtry House there in North Lexington, and for one, it's a wonderful uh, place Man, to visit. Yeah. And they have some really great sales there with local artists. And so it's kind of cool to think that you were talking about Troy earlier and how he was an itinerant artist and how his benefactors were able to further his career by, by supporting him. And in our own way, you know, I could go and start and buy 
fifty hundred dollar piece of art from one of the artists there, which you know is within reach for most people if it's something that they value, yeah. and and you can help with someone's career and you can have something that really will mean a lot to you for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Um, I know in, in my own house, uh, I don't have a lot of art. I have a lot of uh, prints that, and you kind of mentioned that they, early on when you were starting to collect and you didn't have as much money. You know, for me. I bought them at estate sales. I just yeah. find all these things. Um, you know, my wife's actually gotten to the point where she told me, Jeb, don't bring home any more paintings of horses that you have too many. Uh, but then I saw Bill had a, uh, Crossgate had an auction I don't know, a month or two ago, and I got a Larry Wheeler painting that I absolutely adored from there. And uh, so I brought it home, and she's like, well, she said, that one's okay. You can keep that. So that worked out really well. But it, I really like the idea that you can go out and not spend a lot of money. And really start that process because, you know, when to me it seems like when you start down a road early on and you build those habits and you start collecting, it sounds kind of like what you've done, what you mentioned earlier, that as you've grown and as your career has advanced, you've gotten bigger and better in quality. And and as you develop your interest, Mm -hmm. everything that you're going to see that you really love is about two inches beyond how far you can reach financially. <laughs> that makes sense. And yep. so it's what you have to do is you have to make a commitment mm-hmm. to make that extra reach. Uh, when you see something that you just absolutely love and you want to live with for a long, long time, just you just you have to have an extend on. You have to be able to reach out just a little bit farther than you probably should. Mm-hmm. Just snatch that thing and, and bring it home and love it. And as far as investment goes, that's a that's really a totally different uh, kind of approach, particularly in starting a collection. Now, if you go on and and you get a collection like I've got. Uh, there are pieces that I have bought with uh, with uh, making money on them in mind, uh, and some of those have come to fruition, and some of them have. So, do you find that it's hard sometimes because you're trying to buy for someone else's taste versus your own? Because you're oh trying- no 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 no. If if I buy even if I buy something for investment, it's going to be something I love. I see. But it won't be something that I might not be have to have to have for the rest of my. I'll be honest. Is that a stall behind you? And I wish I could show a picture, but is that one right there a stall? Yes. So I haven't seen too many black and whites of his. And something about that. Bill, tell about that. So it's a method really called on Kursai. And what he was doing there, um, it was for reproduction purposes. So that one would have been reproduced, whether for a lithograph or, you know, he did a lot of scarves also. Well, I wouldn't say a lot, but well, yeah. And back then there was there was there was etching, steel engraving, a lot of different mediums. And when it was in black and white, it left less for the artisan to interpret. So the 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 guy that was doing the steel engraving, he was it was easier for him to interpret an engrossage, which is basically using only black and white and in between. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and no, wasn't Henry Stoll, didn't he work as an engraver at one point with uh, Winslow Homer as well? Or at least maybe for the same company? I feel like I read that at one point. I can't remember, but he may have. Well, those guys were really talented and just had to do what they could, yeah. especially since Stoll started off in a barn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he grew up in a barn, basically. Oh, wow. Stoll's father was a, call a hack boy. Okay. Which is a basically a tax in Canada. And Stull started off uh, in his art uh, career wanting to be an actor. And he, he, he actually moved to New York City uh, to, uh, to pursue that. And evidently he didn't, wasn't able to buy enough beans. And he started doing sketches of horses and he got picked up by Spirit of the Times and uh, what's, what's the other big one? Yeah, was he, in, he was in Harper's too. Wasn't Harper's it? Magazine. 
several of those picked up his his paintings, and then when they picked them up, then all of a sudden Mr. Uh, Belmont and Mr. Vanderbilt and Mr. So-and-so saw those things, and they said, hmm, we got guy. a favorite horse we'd like for him to come out and take a look at and paint, and, that, and that's really how he got started, I think. Mm -hmm. So are there, and actually I was wondering, this is a question I had last night because uh, I was reading through the exhibit, the guide to the exhibit that you had at the, uh, the governor's mansion. And it mentioned how he did a lot of sketches and then he would actually paint off of the sketches. Are there many of the sketches still existing? In well, that was the next thing. I want to find the attic or the basement or the barn or the garage that has all of these sketches that he did stacked up somewhere. There must have been literally thousands of them. Because when you open Harper's Magazine or you open Spirit of the Time, every other page is a Henry Stoll sketch that has been changed into something that can be printed, like the steel engraving. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they must have had cheaper uh, ways of even back then. At the end, I don't know, but uh, I mean those book, those magazines, they were month. I think were they monthly magazines, Bill? Yeah, and Harper's I think was bi-weekly. Okay, well, but I mean. Every one of the covers, the and, and all kinds of stuff on the inside of them. Henry Stoll, Henry Stoll, Henry Stoll, Henry Stoll. It's just one after another. I mean, he was a busy guy, and some. And I mean, unless they've all been destroyed, which is really hard to believe. So what I'm hearing is, if someone wanted to have a, a project, they could go and search for those, and uh, might well, be I wouldn't think they'd be the first that have been searching. That's fair. <laughs> I. I would say that you're correct on that. And I actually have, uh, where is it? I saw it just the other day. Uh, oh, it's at Karen Collins. I have a, a, a pencil sketch by Henry. And it's a little bit more developed than the ones that he did for Harper's and did for magazines and all. A lot of those are really almost for the time kind of abstract a little bit. Uh -huh. um, but, uh, uh, yeah, he was. He must have been busy. And those, if somebody saved those, <laughs> have you ever heard anybody that's found a cash of them or anything, Bill? No, never have. I never have either. <laughs> you can you can get the pages out of the magazines. And I have several of those that are framed, but not the originals. Have, but they're not the originals. They're the they're the magazines. Oh. Uh, I really enjoy the sporting art, and we could talk about this all day. And honestly, maybe we'll have a second conversation about that at some point. There's so much to cover. But I also kind of want to take a minute. we got about 15 more minutes left or so. I'd love to talk about just kind of what you've done up here. Because you have some absolutely wonderful cabins. You have a church that you know, it's a really neat church. And, uh, you know, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I was going to say we are near the banks of the Licking in the Blue Licks Battlefield. So I just love this whole area. Forest retreats there, which I would maybe like to tie in later. Yeah. Since you being a Callaway. Uh, well, this five-county area, uh, which basically, it's a history is all tied to the Little Fork of the Licking River, the river that runs down along the boundary of my 1,200 acres that I have. Um, but the, the, the story really begins, uh, I always wanted a farm. And, and when I was in my late 20s or early 30s, I guess, I was able to get a small farm. But I always, I always really wanted more than that. I wanted a, a creek with a big, flat bottom, rock bottom in it where you could go lay and let the water run across you and soak in the sunshine and a place for kids to play. And I, I wanted a river. So I started doing what I called river chasing. And I went up and down the Kentucky River, the Salt River, the, the Elkhorn Creek, the and, and just... Uh, spent literally years doing that. And every place I could find a road that dead ended at the at the waterway. And these were all I wanted them to be navigable waterways. Had to be big enough to be navigable waterways. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I would find a farmer and I'd say, can I drive down your, through your field back there to the, to the river or whatever? And, you know, some of them would say yes, some of them would say no. Uh, uh, I got stuck a couple of times and had to have the farmer come pull me out. But that, I did that on weekends for several years. And then one weekend, I was reading the Lexington Herald Leader in the, in the real estate section, which I always looked at carefully. And here, my friend Mark Maddox, who was a, a realtor up here in, the, in this Nichols County area, and a, a very good realtor and a very great, great auctioneer, uh, had a place listed on the Licking River, 237 acres. Well, I'd been talking to Mark five years about finding a place up there. So he puts this in the newspaper and never calls me up or anything. <laughs> so I called him up and I said, Mark, I said, I see you got this place in the newspaper. And I said, it's going to cost you 3%. I said, I'm a registered real estate agent in Kentucky and I'm the listing agent and I'm the selling agent. And I said, oh, and he cried like a stuck pig. And uh, so I, I came up here, and, and he had a big old suburban, and he drove me up some log roads on this piece of property that I wouldn't have driven a off we off road vehicle on. And I said, "Well, this is it." So I brought my friend Sarah up, and we looked at it, and came back and forth a couple of times. And I made an offer, and I don't think, even though he's required was required to by law, I don't think Mark ever really presented that. I think he just called me back and said they turned it down. Well, I offered. I said, okay, I'll pay him the whole price anyway. Figure out a way to screw me out of that one. Anyway, <laughs> so he did, and I bought this first place up there because it was on the on the Licking River, on a navigable stream. And then I started finding out more about the Licking River, about you know the history of the Licking River is really a huge part of the history of Kentucky. Because everybody came to the mouth of the Licking River at the Ohio River, and that was the highway up into Kentucky, into this part of Kentucky. Oh yeah. And and and, uh, and we had our famous uh, uh, Simon uh, Kenton, Simon Kenton, who was the Daniel Boone of this area, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, other other famous things like the Last Battle of the of the Revolutionary War group Blue Licks and the, you know, just it, there's just huge things about this five or six county area that are just just uh, so historic. And it makes sense because we're on the trace from we're also on the Buffalo also on the Buffalo Trace. The licks. The licks the, the licks were salt licks. That's where the animals went. That's where the buffalo went. And these buffalo herds were Two or three hundred thousand animals in a herd, and when they went down a path, they rooted out trees that were as big around as your car, and they and they actually changed the landscape by the dirt that they picked up in their feet and deposited some somewhere else and things like that, and it was actually that's so. Then the next people that came, they came down the Buffalo Trace because that was the easiest way to go. It was like a big highway. So, and but anyway, I decided that after I got this farm that I wanted a little weekend place to hang out. And uh, my friend J.T. Hammonds said, now don't build a very big place. He said, just build you a little place where you come up on the weekend and if anybody wants to do damage to it or something, it won't really be a big deal. Well, this, this is what I ended up doing. <laughs> 28 by 42. It's got a, a three-quarter loft in it, and it's got a porch across the front that's uh, 10 by 42. And, Pretty solid, solid size and house. And I got the logs from out of a, a for this particular house out of a barn on the north side of Millersburg that was right up next to the road, and they built another barn around it which had preserved the logs. And the front part of that barn fell off, and boom, here's this beautiful log structure on the inside of that barn. So I bought that barn, and that's that's how I got started building log cabins. Since then, I met Johnny Jett, uh, who was introduced to me by a couple of people up here in, in the Nicholas County. And he and I, I, I've done all the design work, 
And he and I, along with some uh, other carpenters, and but he, he and I have really set the logs on all of these structures ourselves. Because you're a builder by trade, correct? Right. I owned a company called Broadview Buildings for years, for 35 or 40 years. That's see, that's so cool. And it's, and we never built a log. Well, we built one log cabin in that period of time. All the rest of them I've done on my own. And Johnny Jet, that was the name, correct? Uh, of uh, Barnwood. Barnwood Builders. Barnwood Builders. So yeah, he's. If you're ever watching that on DIY Network, I believe it's a pretty big show. Very cool. And were you actually on that show? There, I think there are two episodes where I have a very, very short uh, <laughs> interview, which was the deal. I said, you know, I, I don't want to be on your show. Uh, you can have, do whatever you want to do on my property. Look at whatever you want to do, but uh, I don't really want to be part of it. Uh, I appreciate that you're willing to be on our podcast and not be on their show. Well, nobody's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Why do you think we started a podcast and not, not a video? It goes for us, too. You know, it, you really do have a wonderful property because I know I've been over parts of it. And so you have the, your main house. I know there's a guest cabin down below. You have a uh, a chapel, which is, do you want to talk about the chapel? Because a, there's a cool well, story there. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, I live close to Ewing, Kentucky, E-W-I-N-G, Kentucky. And uh, in Ewing, Kentucky, there was a Methodist Episcopal Church which is all a story in itself because after the war, there weren't enough parishioners to, to really finance a church. So the Methodists and the Episcopals got together and decided to share facilities. And one of the tragedies that, that uh, we remember the Episcopal, Methodist Episcopal Church is the horrible situation over in Virginia, I believe it was, where the young man went in and killed nine. Uh, oh, it was in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. I believe. South Carolina, yep. yeah. And that was also, so the, the Episcopal, Methodist Episcopal Church still exists today. But this one had been abandoned and the property sold to a next-door neighbor some 15 years ago and had been abandoned like 30 years ago. And as I was driving through Ewing, I went up that street that it was on, and the only thing holding the old church building up were these lovely, beautiful stained glass windows. And there was about 16 of them. Some of them were four foot three wide by eight foot seven tall. And other ones were doubles of that, and then there was a few that were smaller than that. I went to the guy that owned it, and some guy in California told him that the windows were worth $400,000 or something like that. He said, well, I appreciate you listening to me. When you really get ready to sell them, let me know. So I got a call from him maybe six months, eight months later, and he said, uh, what would you give me for these windows? And I made a price, and it was 1% what the his original statement was. But uh, I bought the windows and I said, now what am I going to do with these? So we had at that time, we had a huge inventory of logs. So I said, we're going to, we're going to build a log chapel. That's, and that's basically what we did. Uh, a couple of episodes of Barnwood Builders, Buildings, Barnwood Builders has been on the, on that chapel. But I, on Barnwood Builders only does stacks logs. That's all they do. Take logs down, they clean them, they defunctify them, and they get them ready, and they make them, and then they stack the logs. Whatever else is done after that, the electric, the plumbing, the chinking, the interior finishes, the exterior finishes, the roof, whatever somebody else does. Okay. So they take pretty much credit for it all. <laughs> And, and and honestly, what they did here, I took down everything they did and did it over with. Uh, but uh, Johnny Jet and I did all. Uh, he he works for he works for the the um, 
Silent Crow Productions, which produces the uh, Farmwood Builders. Mm -hmm. 30, he, he's contracted them for 33 weeks a year. And the rest of the time, he, he still works for me, but a lot of that time, he still works for me. So, uh, or he and I work together. Is better. Until I got where I am, I can't, I can't really do that physical labor now, so. Uh, and Johnny's 73 or 74, so he's not really able to do that much of it either anymore. He did a lot of it while we were doing it. Let me ask you, have you brought anybody else on, anybody younger to teach that to? Because it sounds like between the two of you, you got a lot of knowledge there that it'd be good to pass that on to the next generation. Okay, find us all. I hate to hear that. That's uh, hmm. that's a travesty. You see that in a lot of different trades right now, that it's hard to find people that are willing to go do labor and actually get out there. And it's hard work. I, I believe And it's it. outside. And it's hot. And it's cold. And it's, you know, uncomfortable. It's not a factory job. That makes sense. And what, I won't get on too much of a tangent on this, but we push this idea, this notion in America that you have to go to college and that's the, that is the way that that's the path for everybody. And it shouldn't be. No. In reality, there are, you know, plumbers, pipe fitters, electricians, HVAC work that they pay really well. You can get start getting paid immediately. Anyway, that's a that's a whole other that's well, another conversation. Because I had a young man, Johnny Jet's grandson, came to visit me this morning. Mm -hmm. And he was asking those same questions uh, about how does he handle his money? He, he has gone to welding school and he's making $35 and a nickel an hour. That's great money. 20, and, and that's a union job when he works. He has to travel. Yep. And then he gets a per diem. Mm -hmm. and, so, and, and, and then he has to pay union dues. And, you know, and he's really confused because he was never taught a single thing about any of that in high school. Nothing. So that's one of the things, I, you're talking about one of my personal pet peeves. I mean, I'm a financial advisor. I run into this every day that, you know, we try to teach people how to, you know, take home ec class or you take whatever, all these classes that there's nothing wrong with those. They're great classes, but we need to teach people how does a credit card work? Honestly, I don't care if you learn how to balance a checkbook because most people these days don't carry one. Learn how to pay taxes. Learn what... Uh, interest rates are that if you're going to go out and get a loan on a car, that's okay. But don't pay 20% interest on right. a car. They're very simple things you can do in a one semester and just have a basic personal finance class. How to buy any kind of insurance. Life insurance, mm -hmm. health insurance, car insurance, property insurance. Yep. Most people don't have a clue. 100%. Number one, they don't have a clue how much it all cost. Mm -hmm. And number two, they don't even know what they bought when they once they buy it deal with people that come in all the time and say you know what these are my finances i don't deal with it i don't know how how it all fits together so I, you're absolutely right i mean it, it's my it's bought mind blog but that can also come back to one of the things that this young man asked me he said how can i establish some kind of, and this, this man's 21 years old with a baby a girlfriend and a baby mm -hmm. he's asking questions like this and i'm so proud of him how can I start a retirement fund? He's doing the right things. And, you know, it, I tell people that it's so much easier. If I'm trying to drive from Lexington to Louisville, it's easier for me to look at a map before I get started so I know where I'm going. A plane. Exactly. If I drive, just take off in the, so, any direction and I try to figure it out halfway through, it's going to take me so much longer. And so yesterday... I gave another speech to a young man and his girlfriend who came up here to talk to me about how they can apply their finances to how they can develop a plan for a house and whether they want to really go into a log house or a kit log house or a conventional house or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I talked to him about a plan. And one of the people that's very was very near and dear to me for some reason or another, graduated from college and, and, and all those things, had a good background. He does not know how to make a plan. And it's fear. Fear keeps him from making a plan mm -hmm. because he's afraid the plan won't work and he'll be wrong. You cannot be afraid of a plan. A plan is, the main thing a plan is for is to change. 
you can always change a plan. You can always throw the can plan in the garbage can and start a new plan. Absolutely. But when you look back and you had a plan, you can tell where you've been, mm -hmm. what you did right, what you did wrong. And then a plan going forward, when you run up against a brick wall with a plan going forward, you just change your plan. Yeah, up updated based on new yeah. inputs. Fear of a plan, though, is what stops most people from planning. They're scared to do it. And it's just, it's just unfortunate. Anyway, uh, I, I have had a plan. Fortunately, I have had a, a my mind has works in a planning structure. Yep. So, I mean, just like when I built this log cabin, uh, I knew what logs we had. And I knew, or kind of knew, I developed a plan. And we, we had a very specific plan when we built it. And obviously, uh, I'm very proud of it. And most people would see it. Most there's Some people might not want to live this way. But that's not the point. The point is that they can look at it and they can appreciate what it is. And my one, the one wish that I have, again, that I wish these logs could talk to me. Because these logs were, when they were cut down to make these logs, they were already 150 years old. And now they're another 100. I mean, there's 300 years right here in this log. So those logs were here when the Puritans were coming over right. in the 1600s. Right. I mean. They, they might have been a sapling at that time. But they, they grew into big trees, and the pioneers came and cut them down and hewed them out and made log cabins out of them. And now I've repurposed them again. Uh, I mean, they, the, there's, there's so much history here that you, you just, if they could talk, well, we could write some history books. I believe it. So, Coley, we are coming up on the end of our time, and I, I really appreciate uh Appreciate you spending time with us. And Bill, it looks like you got got a question. I got two questions actually. One, um, with all your building work, um, I was kind of wondering what which ones you'd actually worked on around here, like Hurricane Hall. And uh, I, I did an extensive amount of work at Hurricane Hall, including uh, trying to salvage the wallpaper that was the French scene. Uh, are you aware of that? I don't know if I am. Well, there's a very, very famous wall. Wallpaper used to be painted. Mm -hmm. It wasn't printed. It was painted. In one of the rooms there, there was a, 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 a painted wallpaper, which is in pretty bad shape. And so I started doing research on it, and I called a wallpaper restoration company in New York. I can't remember their names, but they're a 150-year-old company. And they are really interesting company. And so I described to him and I sent pictures to him and all that kind of stuff. He said, oh, he said, we, we've got a full, uh, full, totally restored uh, uh, set of that in stock here in the company right now. And he says, basically, it's what you've got isn't worth restoring. Hmm. And he said, it's just it's in horrible condition. And I said, I could send four artists down there and you know, you'd spend $150,000 restoring that. And I've got a full set of this exact same scene here, or, you know, as close as you can get from a painter. It's a French artist that did this. And he said, and it's $35,000 or whatever. So uh, the economic structure played in there, and they basically took the wallpaper off and painted the room. But, uh, uh, the uh, the owner that I was working for wasn't particularly interested in the history of it anyway. Ah, oh, that's a shame. Yeah, but there was nothing in there that was salvageable. It was all in such terrible condition. Oh, really? Oh. In terms of the wallpaper. Yeah. Okay. And all the woodwork and the cabinetry and the flooring and the doors and all that stuff. We 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 redid all of it. Okay. Windows. Huh. I bet it looked fantastic. And then uh, we did the, the Bell House out on Bowman's Mill Road. 
and I can't remember what, and, and then we did the other, the Bowman, and then we did the Bowman house out there also. Uh, I did the, 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 uh, the house that I did downtown that was the first piece of real estate owned by a freed slave in Fayette County, the uh, Oldham house. Yeah, on limestone. On limestone. Uh, I did my office there on my farm on Carrick Pike, which was an early, early 1800s brick structure. And there's seven or eight of those brick structures done by the same mason, and I don't know the mason's name. But they're readily identifiable. They're solid masonry walls, and they're they're uh, Flemish bond, and uh, the bricks are all the same, all made in the same way. Of course, hauling bricks around at that time was a, that was the biggest thing. Yeah, so they weren't fired bar. on site. No, they were fired somewhere else. But they they were not they didn't haul a brick bar. Uh, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> uh, and let's see. I know there's two or three other ones, but I just I can't recall them right now. But that was a passion. Well, the uh, the uh, famous architect, not McMeekin, but the one before him, McMurtry, uh, uh, Lewinsky. Uh, what's what's the park? Kennedy. What's the park name for them? Fired them all off. What's there. the park? Um, Where all the neat houses are in. Oh, uh, Gratz. Yeah, Gratz Park. Oh, yeah. How, uh, Warfield Gratz. Warfield Gratz house uh, out on Old Frankfurt Pike. That uh, I redid that house uh, with, with with no regard to historical renovation. Hmm. <laughs> I did it for a foreign client, and they probably spent two million dollars on the house. But uh, historical. The history of the house is not part of the part of the renovation. Some people mm. just don't care, and it is a travesty. Well, and and then I've got another. Oh, and then the uh, the house there on Mount uh, 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 Horror Road that was in uh, Don Decoy Don's wife's family, the Ward family, for years. Oh yeah, that house. We've done extensive remodeling to that house. And and with because that's owned by a French lady uh, Maria Niarcos, and in France you don't move a rock. Don actually told me to ask you about that when I was visiting him. You don't move a rock in France without getting permission. Actually, they wanted to join these two old you know, and you know they, their history goes back a lot further than I. Well, these buildings were five hundred years old. They wanted to join them. You know how they had to end up doing it. Going down and making a tunnel in between these two buildings, tying <laughs> them together. Hmm. That's well, amazing. Well, over, over here, we'd have built a pergola or something between the two. I do have one more question. Okay. Your middle name's Durrett, like Reuben Durrett, Durrett founder yeah. of the Wilson Club. All right. Durrett. Durrett. My last name's Callaway, yeah. with an A, yeah. importantly. Thank you. As in Richard Callaway whose daughters were famously kidnapped with Jemima Boone, and he infamously brought Daniel Boone up on court-martial charges. Do you have any stories about either of those two men? Well, you look like Reuben, by the way. <laughs> Reuben. Durrett. Oh. <laughs> I am very sketchy on my Durrett part of the history. The family. I know it's they were in Shelby County and Jefferson County, I guess, up that way. Mm -hmm. and I really know very little bit about that. But uh, the, the Callaways, uh, you know, I pretty well start with Colonel Richard, came to Boonesboro with Daniel Boone. And they were inseparable at that time. And then as as things happen and things grow and people grow apart, they kind of went in different directions and had their parts, pieces. And then there's a story, of course, about Betsy and Betsy Callaway and I guess her sister, some discussion about whether it was two girls or three girls or four girls, whatever. And then, but Daniel Boone, evidently on his own, by himself, 
across the river and went up into Ohio and found these Indians that kidnapped his girl and brought them out of or, or, or got his way in there and then they all escaped or something. But uh, he got these girls back to Boonesboro, which is, you know, pretty, pretty huge happening in yeah. history. Um, and then Colonel Richard, I think he had six or seven sons. And he picked most of those sons up and they headed west. Halloway County in Kentucky is named after Colonel Richard, although they spelled it with an O instead of an A. And that is a bone of contention with me. If you want to know me, you better know me by Callaway with an A. Right. Been hearing it for years. <laughs> <laughs> well, Coley, I really appreciate it. We're going to go ahead and close it off now. And I'll be honest, I, I think there's enough. We can have a whole other conversation another time if you're open to oh, it. Oh, I'm absolutely open to it. I, I, I love to do this. Really, uh, I'm a, I'm a, consider myself to be somewhat of a storyteller. I can tell. And you've done a great <laughs> job. Thank you so much. All right.